Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Nias, and in today's episode, that's pretty much all you're getting. It's just me for today because I'm back with another Myth Digest episode. So if you haven't listened to one of these before, basically I sit down and take you through the history of a different classical myth from Greece or Rome, or oftentimes both, talk about its different sources and its different variations, and perhaps even a little bit of how it's filtered into popular culture today. Before we get into the myth, however, I just wanted to quickly mention that you can support this podcast and the other content I create online, either on Patreon or Ko-fi. At Patreon, I'm Bookish Thoughts, and on Ko-fi, I'm Jean's Thoughts, but both of those will be linked in the show notes down below, as always. And even if you can't give financially, just leaving a review on your chosen platform or following the podcast on Twitter is an amazing help and support. So thank you so much for listening, and now let's get in to this episode's myth. So as you'll have already guessed from the title of this podcast episode, we're here to talk about the Greek and Roman myth of Medusa. So Medusa is quite the recognisable Greek monster, shall we say, even in popular culture today. Those snakes for hair, the eyes that turn men and women to stone by glancing at them, have managed to capture imaginations throughout the centuries. And I think a lot of us are familiar with her image, even if we don't know her story. And her story is actually quite a complicated one that may surprise those of you who haven't heard it before. So in some versions of Medusa's myth, including the most detailed account of her story we have, which is in Ovid's Metamorphosis, Medusa actually began life as a mortal woman. So Medusa was well known as this incredibly beautiful mortal woman who was praised far and wide, Yet whilst her admirers numbered many, she remained unmarried, unconvinced by any of their declarations, presumably. Instead, she continued to live in the home of her parents and presumably contribute to the daily running of the household. She worshipped at the nearby temple to the goddess Athena, who was one of the three virgin goddesses amongst the Olympians. And each day she would travel to the river in order to collect water or do chores for her family. And on one fateful day, she was spotted by the god Poseidon who was looking up at her from the water and became enamoured with the reflection that she saw staring back at herself. Now, like already mentioned, Medusa was not interested in the advances of men. However, Poseidon wasn't willing to take no for an answer. He took Medusa by force, raping her inside the nearby temple of Athena. Now, as the gods always know exactly what is going on inside their temple, Athena was witness to this horrific event. Her reaction was not to punish Poseidon, however. Her reaction was to take out her anger on Medusa. There may be various reasons for this, including that Athena didn't feel she could take her ire out on another god, but I think what surprises most of us is the way that Athena blames the victim in in a way that we talk about in modern situations of sexual violence, when the victim becomes perceived by those around her as responsible for the terrible thing that has happened to her, whilst oftentimes the rapist or attacker gets off scot-free as he does in this situation. 
Now, Medusa's fate is a terrible one. She is turned into a monstrous Gorgon. So Gorgons exist outside of Medusa. There are other Gorgons in Greek mythology. And these beasts are women with talons and claws and in certain depictions, snakes for hair. Now in some versions, it's only Medusa who has snakes for hair and other versions, they all have snakes for hair. But regardless, they all have the power to turn men and women to stone when they look at them. So suddenly Medusa can no longer function as a part of everyday society. She cannot spend her time around mortals, partly because of the way she now looks, but also because of her dangerous powers. Like I already mentioned, however, there are other Gorgons in the world, two sisters called Thesno and Uriel. Now these sisters were daughters of the sea gods and titans, Forces and Keto. So with nowhere else to go, Medusa was forced to travel across the sea to find her new sisters on the island of Sarpedon. Now this is the story of how Medusa became the striking Gorgon that we all recognise, but there's another character who's an important player in this story, and that is Perseus. Now Perseus was the son of Zeus by a mortal woman named Danae. Danae's father had learned from an oracle that one day his own daughter's child would kill him. So for that reason, he forced both Danae and his grandson out of his kingdom. Mother and child were locked in a wooden trunk and thrown out to sea in the hopes that they would starve to death. Now, thankfully for Danae and her newborn son, Perseus, their makeshift vessel was discovered by a man named Dictes. Dictes was the brother of the king of Seraphos, Polydectes, and upon opening the trunk, he immediately fell head over heels in love with Danae. Love is pretty spontaneous in Greek mythology. He proposed on the spot and exiled from her home with a newborn baby to take care of. What else could Danae do but say yes? Now, despite these circumstances, their marriage appeared to be a happy one and Perseus was raised as Dictes' own son. Together, they raised him to be a strong and cunning young man. Meanwhile, Polydectes, however, Dictes' brother, had also developed a desire for Danae, but he knew that Perseus would stand in his way if he attempted to take her by force. So Polydectes set about planning to get rid of the young man. Luckily for him, Perseus had already set the scene and made a boastful claim that he would be able to slay the Gorgon Medusa, who was already famed throughout the land. Polydectes therefore requested that Perseus set out on a mission in order to slay the Gorgon and bring back her head to him, a mission that he surely could not survive. So Perseus set out on his mission with no real way to slay the monster until Athena comes to his aid. Athena told him that if he were to visit a group of nymphs called the Hesperides, that they would have the weapons that he needed in order to slay Medusa. So thanks to Athena, Perseus is now equipped with the right weaponry and is able to sneak up into the home of the three Gorgon sisters. And sneak up on them he did. Once Perseus had arrived on the Gorgon's island, he remained hidden, waiting until the dead of night to make his move. As the three Gorgon sisters slept, Perseus crept into their home. Surreptitiously, he slunk through their abode, keeping his back to the sleeping figures all the while. Now Perseus knew not to look at the Gorgon's eyes directly or he would be turned to stone. So instead he held up his well-polished shield so he could gauge their closeness from the reflection. Then, his eyes locked on Medusa's face in the makeshift mirror, he raised his sword and swung it behind his back, lopping off her head. Blood poured forth from the lethal wound at Medusa's neck, but along with blood came two unexpected slimy creatures. Unknown to anyone, Medusa had been pregnant. 
The two children that had grown within her belly all the time were a result of Poseidon's brutal attack and Perseus's murder had freed them from their mother's body. The first child was recognisable as a human baby, a young boy who would eventually be known as Chrysaor. The second, however, took the shape of a horse. This stallion was the famed Pegasus from whose snowy white hide protruded two mesmerising feathered wings. So not made out of a cloud by Zeus as in Disney's Hercules. Presumably Perseus did not allow the surprising sight to distract him however and with one hand he grabbed Medusa's severed head by the still wriggling snakes attached and stuffed it into a cloth sack that he had brought with him as even decapitated Medusa's eyes still retained the power to turn anyone that looked into them to stone. Meanwhile the commotion had awoken Medusa's sisters. Uriel had let forth a blood-curdling scream whilst Thesno lunged at the warrior. Perseus had come prepared however and placed the helmet of Hades snugly over his head. This gave him the power to turn invisible and as soon as it rested on his shoulders his entire body vanished. Unable to see their sister's murderer the two gorgons crumpled, lamenting Medusa's death while Perseus fled to the island, her head stood safely underneath his arm. For Medusa this marked the end of her life and her tale but for Perseus he was yet to return home with Medusa's head in his sack. And although his intentions had been simply to hand the loot over to his adoptive uncle, when he arrived back home, it turned out that Polydictes, assuming Perseus was now dead, had attacked his mother and his adopted father, Dictes and Danae were now in hiding. So Perseus saw this as an opportunity to overthrow his uncle. He took the severed head from the sack in which he carried it and turned the Gorgon's lifeless eyes on Polydictes himself. The other man was turned instantly to stone. Dead but weaponized, Medusa's head was handed over to the goddess Athena in order to protect humanity from its deadly gaze. And this truly marks the end of Medusa's story. Like with any and all classical myths, however, there's never just one version of a tale. In some sources, Medusa was actually born a Gorgon and was never a mortal woman. So for example, in Pindar's 12th Pythian Ode, Medusa, Uriel and Sethno are described as the daughters of Forces and Quito from the very offset, thus erasing the version of events that involve Poseidon, whereas Hesiod in his Theogony manages to combine all of these elements together in a much more starkly contrasting version of the Gorgon Medusa's life. Pausanias attempts to rationalise the myth in his description of Greece, book two. He describes Medusa as a legendary queen who ruled the people of Libya in North Africa. According to his writings, she was in effect a warrior woman. She led her own army and hunting parties, relying on no men. One night, however, according to Pausanias, the Greek king Perseus and his own army snuck up on Medusa's encampment and assassinated her, not dissimilarly to the events we've already recounted. In this instance, Perseus was mesmerised by her beauty after he had killed her and chopped off her head so that he might take it with him out of lust rather than fear. It's impossible to talk about female warriors in classical mythology without conjuring up the image of the Amazons, however. And there's actually a version of Medusa's story that interacts heavily with the Amazonian warriors as well. Pausanias's words follow in the tradition of Diodorus Siculus, who places the origins of the Gorgon race in Libya alongside the Amazons in book three of his histories. 
Now he describes both races of strong yet fearsome women living inharmoniously in the same country. In fact, according to his version of events, the two groups of women often fought and the Gorgons appeared to number in their thousands in earlier times. Eventually, he states, however, that their people began to lose their hold on the land with the death of their queen, Medusa. So with a better understanding of the ancient Medusa, that brings us back to the modern Medusa, because she is everywhere, from the logo of designer fashion brand Versace to one of the most popular monsters depicted in novels and films set in ancient Greece. In particular, she takes pride of place in both instalments of the Clash of the Titans franchise, the first rendition of which was released in 1981 and the remake which came out in 2010. Both films feature Medusa as a major antagonist and jazz up her traditional appearance with the addition of a serpent's tail instead of legs, really playing up the snake elements of the original creature. While the 1981 movie emphasises her monstrous appearance and dials back the humanity of her features, the 2010 version goes down a different route by instead heavily sexualising the human half of its Medusa and depicting her as a creature of allure as well as fear. As if jumping on this idea of Medusa as a particularly alluring figure, she also comes into play in Percy Jackson and the Olympian series by Rick Riordan. Now, this is a wildly popular middle grade series that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's even been adapted for the big screen. And in both book one and the film adaptation, Percy Jackson comes in contact with Medusa, who is again one of the major antagonists of the story. This Medusa, as played by Uma Thurman, is depicted as a serial dater, who rather than a victim of sexual violence, was in fact Poseidon's ex-girlfriend which when you're more familiar with the origins of this myth really seems to highlight some of the more disturbing aspects of our attitudes towards women, sexuality and sexual violence. It would be almost impossible to catalogue all of Medusa's appearances in popular culture in this podcast episode however, or it might end up being many, many hours long. You may recognise her as a monster from the video game Assassin's Creed, the TV show Supernatural, or even the race of Gorgons from the tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons. Wherever she has appeared in popular culture throughout time, however, it has tended towards the more unflattering depictions of her character often ignoring the origin of her story. Time after time, however, audiences encounter the snake-haired Gorgon, who is not only a creature of myth and legend, but repeatedly depicted as an evil monster. If any ounce of her humanity does remain, it serves as something for onlookers to lust after, as a part of some allusion to her beautiful past. This woman who was punished by one god in the ultimate example of victim-blaming has become known throughout history for what she was turned into. Repeatedly, her humanity has been taken away from her every time another medium paints her as a monstrous villain or tempting Gorgon, without consideration or context, in what feels like an endless cycle. Not to despair, however, there are always those questioning the status quo. Over the years, authors and artists have attempted to reclaim Medusa's image on behalf of us all. You may in fact remember a recent image of Medusa that went viral across social media. This was the striking image of a Medusa depicted in stone by Italian sculptor Luciano Garbati carved in 2008. 
Luciano's stone sculpture was a reversal of the 1554 bronze by Benvenuto Cellini, which depicted Perseus holding the severed head of Medusa in triumph, but instead Luciano decided to take this image and present Medusa casually holding the severed head of her mythological executioner. A subversive take in itself that questions the good guy, bad guy dynamic of the original story. An interpretation of the story that, like we already mentioned, took Twitter by storm in 2018 when it became a symbol of feminist fury in the wake of the Me Too movement. Others, meanwhile, have attempted to retell Medusa's story with a focus on the woman herself. You may, in fact, remember one of those people from a previous podcast episode. Anwen Hayward is a scholar and author of the novella Hear the World Entire, published in 2016, which allowed Medusa to share her own story with the reader. Narrated by the woman herself, now a Gorgon, Medusa traps herself in a cave in order to avoid coming in contact with mortals and turning them to stone. The reader witnesses as Perseus wheedles his way into Medusa's trust, only to betray her once she reveals herself to him. The novella itself serves as a vehicle for exploring sexual assault and trauma, thus reconsidering the part of Medusa's story prior to her transformation from a modern perspective. And if you'd like to hear more about the overlap between creative writing and academia, then do go listen to my episode with Anwen, where I chatted more with her about her book and her other work. From my perspective, what I've always considered most important about these attempts to reconsider Medusa and her story, whichever version they've chosen, is that they remind us that she was and is a woman, a human, and not just a monster. Every time we look back into Medusa's past, we have the opportunity to redress Athena's vicious act of punishment. We have the ability to cease to cover up Poseidon's act of violence, and we give Medusa herself the chance to reclaim her humanity. But with all of this knowledge under your belt, perhaps now you will have a more nuanced understanding of the character of Medusa and it will change the way that you perceive her in modern popular culture because I have no doubt that she will continue to crop up in all different forms of media. In fact, I'd be interested to hear what your first exposure to the image of Medusa the snake-haired Gorgon was. Was it in a children's book, in a movie, or when you started looking more into Greek mythology? Let me know by sending me a tweet over at That's Ancient on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out the previous instalments in the Myth Digest sub-series, I guess, of the podcast. We've explored Procne and Philomela, Helen of Troy and Pandora so far. If you'd like to request a future Myth Digest, then you can also let me know via Twitter. I would love, love, love to hear what you're interested in. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and I'll be back in the next one.